The following Dharma talk was given at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Good to see everybody tonight. Wanted to take uh, a little bit of time, not too much, uh, to hear from a few folks about this investigation, this very direct investigation. Because you might have noticed, you know, as we do sometimes when we're talking to friends about our spiritual practice or spiritual practices, you know, we can sometimes we find ourselves constructing really beautiful, elegant descriptions of what's true or what we believe in or what the Buddha taught or you know things like that, and and those words can sound really impressive and they can actually. Uh, we can have waves of joy, right? This sort of emotional response to the beauty of the words we're speaking. But that kind of uh, inspiration, let's call it, you know, it's pretty fragile, something that comes and goes. So in a more direct and immediate way, you know, we have this mechanism of body and mind, this life lived through this, these things we call the body and the mind. And uh, so in a very earthy, direct sense, uh, given what we've learned about this embodied experience, you know, mind and body experience, do we have some confidence? What's the confidence that has been gained from observing being right in the middle of things in any of those moments when we haven't been lost in thought. And we've learned a thing or two about what to do with this experience of having a body and mind. And then hopefully as the mind distills the sort of cumulative experience of living into certain values or certain principles. I mean, whether you clearly articulate this to yourself or not, it's not so important. It's more important whether it's there's something alive, some kind of wisdom that's alive. Basically, how the past is informing the present moment. So all the mistakes we've made don't weren't wasted. <laughs> you know, all that suffering, how many times we banged our head saying something stupid or, you know, whatever, all the different ways we've made mistakes and cause ourselves and probably other people suffering. So how does that live on now? How does it inform the moment? And did you notice, like in this reflection, did you, were you able to tune into the mental quality of confidence or faith when you recognize how that wisdom was active, could be in moments, active in the present moment, sort of informing in real time, what the mind was doing, how the mind was la- relating, what, what the mind was paying attention to and how it was paying attention, what the mind wasn't paying attention to, right? Because these choices, whether we're aware, consciously aware of it or not, the choice about what the attention is going to attend to and how, this is happening all the time. And then when there's more awareness, mindful awareness, then we're aware that that's happening all the time, those choices. 
in a sense, a moral choice, what we pay attention to, how we pay attention to, moral in the sense of there are consequences. Like in Buddhist terms, we say there's, there's karmic fruit, even on the level, this very simple level of like what the mind is doing, let alone what we act out you know, in our relationships, what we say, but even on that more subtle level of what the mind is doing, what it's paying attention to, how it's paying attention, what intentions are arising in the mind, it affects the mind. So maybe three, four people, it'd be nice just to hear, like, what, what did you learn in this reflection, this contemplation that we did the last 25 minutes or so? Any thoughts that you feel like sharing with the group? Yeah, Andrew, please. Um, I found sort of an interesting way that uh, the wisdom showed up was that uh, not not too long ago, even just the the act of sort of being given an assignment in a sit, like think about the things that lead to happiness, like that would have made me tight and I would have been like, there would have been a lot of tension around staying focused and sort of like exhaustively sort of mining every little thing that I, I could. And uh, and this, this time I found it... Uh, much easier and more natural to just kind of drop it in and watch what showed up and not worry about if it was everything that I had ever learned or or not trying to to drag it up or or do anything there but really to just like allow that uh allow that exercise in but not not take it too seriously or not feel like it was something that I had to do yeah and and it's really important because just to see what you've described because the first is it's it's like what what the mind would learn is that external orientation of thinking I have to live up to some expectation of what I think I should be doing is suffering right because we have this external orientation that you know Mark has some idea I don't know what he's talking about, but I have to meet that idea. You know, I'm not saying that it was exactly that way for you. And so I have to struggle, right? Even though the whole point was, you know, it, like upon reflection, that doesn't relate at all, except to see that that's suffering. Oh, honey, that's not the way, right? So that I know. Like chasing those external um, frames of what's good and bad, it's like, always suffering, right? Haven't we at least learned that in moments? And some of us maybe are further along, like we're less often fooled by those external frames. And some of us, or probably all of us in certain places of our life, still get caught regularly in those external frames. What do people think about me, you know? Or just what we picked up from culture about what's good and bad. And so just to get to that place where we realize from the place of compassion, like, I'm just trying to take care of myself in real time, right? Just trying to abide with ease in real time and, and learn, like, what helps, what moves in that direction, what moves in the opposite direction of that. And that alone feels good like to take that responsibility to be somewhat independent like I don't I'm not accountable to anybody right now I'm just accountable to this internal barometer like 
is the heart getting squeezed or is the heart releasing? It almost feels like it, I think it would have been a fear of like missing out on some fruit of that activity before when really I feel like it would have been missing out on it. Yeah. But it's just interesting to look at, um, yeah, just the different ways the mind habitually ties, feels justified in some way to tie itself up into a knot. And for what purpose? Yeah, other reflections, a couple other reflections. Yeah, Ellen, and then over to Brian. Ellen's over here at the back. Uh just to review what skills I've gained, and I could just, okay, oh, like that, is that better? The skills I've gained primarily to catch myself when I'm suffering, when those bad negative thinking, I can intercept them knowing from experience that they don't help. There's nothing useful about them. So, I'm not being foiled into long periods of interacting with them. I can just catch it right away. And if I'm having particular difficulty, I can go to loving-kindness meditation. If it's um, So remembering that as a skill, if I don't seem to be able to control or um, bring myself back to just noticing. Yeah. Um, it feels good. It feels very freeing. Yeah. And that I, I have choices about what I'm thinking about. can take a pause. Thank you. Isn't that amazing that a lot of our faith, confidence, is in what doesn't help. But that's not a small thing. We, we should not be dismissive of that. And in a way, you know, I, when I look at like what my meditation practice looks a lot of the time, knowing so clearly now over the years of practice what doesn't help, what doesn't need to be done. And it's basically a lot of intention to do isn't going to be helpful. Or relating to intention in a personal way. So it's, this, it's not so much that intention to do something is inherently bad, but the strong habit is to personalize intention, to feel like I have to do something. And so a lot of where, what we do in meditation, like what we sometimes call open awareness practice, is um, really suspicious of any intention, like not identifying with intention, not suppressing it, because that would be just identifying with the intention to suppress intention, right? But just letting, leaving things alone, right? So that's a big part of the meditation. Not so much that we know where we're going or who we are, like I suggested in the guided meditation, but just like, what isn't going to be helpful? Trying to get myself out of this place, trying to to get myself into a good place. I'm not saying that we never do never use intention in meditation. I'm just saying that uh, one place we keep coming back to, some understanding we keep coming back to and refining, is this movement toward non-identification with intention. Uh, somebody doing something. Yeah. 
and it's peace. I think Brian was next, and then we can go to Wendy and then to Haya. And then we'll end with Haya. So for me, it as I settle into <laughs> which feels like confront this large piece for me, I've I have a lot of practice of my faith being external versus being internal. And so when I try to sit with the internal, um, I can do it for a short period of time, but then my fear and my doubt kick in. And then I try to remind myself that what do I know for sure? What I think I know is that um, there is going to be suffering uh, and that it'll pass. It, there's nothing that's permanent. So those are the two things that are really helpful for me because I'm a deep mm-hmm. feeler, so I feel very, very deeply. So... Um, and and so and and I feel like I'm trying to grasp towards what is pure faith. What is that? You know, because I've practiced so well to give my this. If I pray to something, it they'll do it, and I'm out of the loop. I don't have to be responsible. I can just say yes, please. So I think it's a struggle for me. I don't and and because I can't articulate it in my brain or even in my language of what is it that I'm supposed to be, what is the end result? Because if I know what the end result is, then I can somehow rearrange that. I can slowly, like, okay, I do this, I do this, and I do this, and then I can wait for it. So it's cumbersome for me, especially when I feel like I'm being bounced around um, and I don't have that ability to grasp it. Yeah, but that... You're, that's exactly what you need to uh, keep seeing, Brian, and keep relaxing with uh, not being able to grasp it. It's just interesting. Like one of the things, and this is uh, what I thought would be a good homework assignment, sort of what Brian is pointing to, looking at where there is doubt, how doubt shows up in our lives. And um, one of the antidotes for doubt, a lot of you know this because it really works. It always works when the mind has doubt about anything, right? And then we just go to something very simple like this touching my hand on my thigh and feeling the cloth of my pants, right? And just allowing the mind to connect and be intimate with that simple experience of touching. And so now the attention is going there, and so other things are being dropped in order for the mind to be fully present with the simple experience of touching. And there's no doubt in this experience of touch being known or sound being heard or whatever it might be. So the way to deal with doubt isn't to resolve it on its terms, but to realize, and this is sort of that intermediary space between where you realize that the mind wanted confidence, wanted to turn toward faith, until you remember some of the things you have faith in, like that things change. You gave that example. But even before that, before the distillation and the articulation, kind of articulating what the mind understands in a non-conceptual way, is to, because that movement can be the expression of aversion to the not knowing, right? But see, the mind does know some things smoothness is being known. And I can have powerful confidence in the reality, in the rightness that contact, 
touch in this case, you know, is like this now. Hardness is like this. Hearing is like this. And then when I do that distillation, you know what, everything changes. It's not because I'm trying to give, my, give myself ground. It's because that articulation is helping the heart be more intimate with the way it is, right? the free fall of the way it is, as opposed to presuming there's somebody who needs the ground. Right? The ground we get, the only ground we get, maybe two things, but for sure one thing, we have this ground of connecting, right? Knowing this, this is being known. This is, that's, that is the basis of confidence and faith. We have to learn to trust that. That doesn't mean there aren't concepts there, but the, the concepts are in support of that, it, it, sort of the immediacy of experiencing, right? And there's there's a particular kind of um, unshakable faith, confidence that comes from that kind of experiencing. Because it doesn't matter what anybody else says. It's like when I'm touching this, you know, your opinion about what's going on here, because the clarity and the intimacy of that touch is complete. There's something complete and sort of not the right word, but final about it, right? Not that it's a set thing. I mean, it is also changing. But, but there's no doubt. There's no confusion in that. And I don't have to articulate it to prove to myself that this is how it is, right? Because it's, and I can, you know, I can say, oh, yeah, it's touch. I'm touching my pants or something like that. But see, that concept doesn't disturb, right? It just can be like a useful placeholder for that experience where maybe you can, other people can kind of get. But that's sort of where we're going with this faith. And I'll talk more about it tonight, but we'll hear from Wendy and then Haya, and then I'll say a few more things. I don't know if anyone else in here has the kind of mind I have, but it's, it's, it's pretty relentless and persistent and hell-bent on figuring things out. And there's an interesting paradox that I'm, that I'm seeing. that It seems like um, confidence or some faith seems to rise in the absence of doing. And what's been helpful has been these instructions that I've been playing with for a few months now of just letting go of what's gone on, letting go of what hasn't happened yet, letting go of now, letting go of figuring things out, letting go of trying to make anything happen, letting go of fixing anything, and then just resting as it is and relaxing. Um, which all of which confounds <laughs> um, the pattern of my mind, the patterns. Um, um. So what do you do when that stuff happens, though? Oh, it's just rem- just noticing that, that it's happening. Yeah. And then reminding that that's possible. To yeah. letting, it's possible but to let go. Because otherwise you can turn that 
image of not doing intention, for example, yeah. into... Th- into s- doing something. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> Which is basically how we practice a lot of the time. Yeah. We have some idea of equanimity or some idea of peace or some idea of not doing anything, and then we try to do that, like you said. Yeah. And things get tight again. And then we feel betrayed because we thought we had properly distilled mm-hmm. what life has taught me. Mm-hmm. like you articulated to all of us just a minute ago. And so it's always, it's always problematic because when, uh, it's like that distillation, it, it's, it has to get out of the box of, like we're always trying to solve the problem the self has, right? As opposed to solving the problem the self is. So mm-hmm. from the point of view, the concept of self having a problem, stopping doing is the appropriate solution. Like I've got to stop thinking. I've got to stop feeling like I've got to solve these problems. I just have to let things be. But the actual practice is letting the neurotic mind do whatever the neurotic mind's going to do. And yeah, it does actually eventually quiet down Kind of. <laughs> <laughs> but but if, if there's any skin in the game, if there's anybody who wants it to quiet down, that's the doing, and it doesn't quiet down. Mm-hmm. It, the way it's restless or the way that it's reactive changes, but the tightness of that reactivity doesn't go away. And that's why it is so frustrating to do this practice. Because we always approach, we, we do start to get some clarity of the problem, right? Because from an egoic point of view or you know, self-centered point of view, there's some real intelligence and we map it out, we see, we're paying attention, we connect the dots, we get the lay of the land. But, but we're always interpreting it. We don't question the basic premise that the mind concludes that I got it and this is how I solve it. And that's why the pointing out instructions are so important. And that's why exploring faith and connection, because just connecting to any experience and really getting a sense of how trustworthy that is, just to be intimate with any thinking is thinking, seeing is seeing, hearing is hearing. It doesn't matter what the particular experience is because it's always available. That's, that's so cool, <laughs> right? Because it's always there. And it doesn't require any analysis or any framing, any conceptual framing for the sort of uh, direct confidence and trust to emerge. And there's a sense, a sort of an inherent sense of rest, right? Because it doesn't involve identification with intention, a sense of somebody doing something. And really, this really comes down to the, uh, one of the points I wanted to make tonight is, it's like um, the path of practice is this process of understanding what the path of practice is. It's not like we know what the path of practice is and then we do it and then we get somewhere. 
we just keep messing around, messing around. We hear lots of talks. It's amazing how many talks people listen to, you know, coming to places like this, but also, you know, now online. There's just so much wisdom on the Internet. It's amazing. And ignorance, of course, too. (laughs) (laughs) Both extremes. It's amazing. And we... But we're just messing around a lot. And eventually, a kind of innocence and humility is beaten into the mind. And we really start to take a little bit of a more simple, direct, like, I'm pretty sure I, like, the one thing I have faith in is I don't know what I'm doing. I really don't know. And when I, like, look back on my 36 or so years of practice now, you know, and just see... Over and over again, like even this last month-long retreat, several very powerful, poignant moments of really getting to that place of knowing that I don't know. You know, it, it's like that habit of thinking we know what we're doing is so persistent because it, it, it's sort of synonymous with some kind of psychic sense of being in control, thinking we know what we're doing in, in spiritual life or life in general. And to kind of really get to that place where I know I don't know what to do. Because every move I make, every spiritual move I make, I pull out all the stops, I try hard, I, ch- you know, I, I hold back, but nothing works because it's all done from the frame of somebody trying to do it right. And that premise is off from the start. So that you know, when we're looking for faith, it's going to be partly like Ellen was pointing to, knowing what doesn't work, and then eventually some intuition that can't be quite articulated. But it doesn't mean there isn't a deepening intuition or understanding. You know, some intuition about letting go. That struggle isn't the way. And so that means letting, like trusting, or it's simple. It's here and now. And then, then when we start to experiment, like to actually act that out, it means total exposure. And that's, that's a hard lesson because it means we have to feel everything and not defend ourselves. <laughs> it's like when we have an argument with somebody and, and we feel someone's being somewhat abusive or unfair. And uh, it's just, it's so hard not to defend ourselves. Even if, we know we shouldn't be defending ourselves. Like it's just going to make things worse. But it's really hard not to defend ourselves when we know we're, when we're pretty sure we're right. Yeah. Thanks, Wendy, for sharing that. Hi. Do you want to finish up this part? If I can remember what I was going to talk about. <laughs> um, it was really interesting because when I first sat down, not the first sit, but when you were guiding us, I was like. I can't hear him. I need to hear him. I need to hear him. And then all of a sudden I said, why are you trying so hard? You don't have to try so hard. Whatever you need to hear, you'll hear. And whatever, you know, so I, I, I decided to just let go of trying to listen. And I let go and I instead I went, oh, I felt my breath for a moment. And then I, I felt this twinge or I heard something, you know. So I was more being aware, I found, of just what is it, what is being known rather than 
trying to follow somebody else's direction for me because at that moment I no longer was able to follow that direction. So it, it's kind of interesting because I've been in my practice in the last couple of weeks, I've been finding myself being really curious. I think that's more the the word that I can use to describe how I'm practicing. I don't know what I'm doing, but I know that I'm just curious and, and wanting to see what shows up. Yeah. Thanks, Haya. That's helpful. So this issue of faith and doubt, you know, and uh, and kind of like off of what Haya just said, just really dropping it in and just seeing what gets illuminated in the next week in particular before we move on to the other of the five faculties, right? We have, and faith really is some sense. It's interesting, like in the one discourse the Buddha gave on trans, transcendent origination, right? So there's a very famous central teaching on dependent origination. The Buddha had, because it, he described this as a natural system, right? That impersonal, no center to this activity that we call me. It's a natural system. And so he needed a description of like, well, how is it that a suffering being so clearly arises if this is all impersonal, right? And so that teaching is dependent origination, and we'll get to it in the six-year Buddhist studies curriculum. So we keep cycling through it once every six years as an eight-week course. But he also had to describe how the awakening process is a natural process, not a person, not something that somebody has to do. And so that was another teaching he gave, transcendent origination. And so as a natural cause and effect, just to simplify it, process, right? there's suffering and Suffering, the, a human being experiencing some suffering, knowing that she, he, the person suffering. And faith then arises like, oh, I'm really hurting. My mind, my heart, my body feels all bound up. And I have some confidence it doesn't have to be this way. Now this is kind of familiar, isn't it? This experience where you notice you're going through life and then you wake up enough to realize hey, I'm a suffering being, you know, I'm all bound up, I'm all tight about something, I'm all whatever, closed down, hot to bo- hot and bothered. And that faith moment where, and given how wisdom has distilled everything that I've learned from life, I'm pretty sure it doesn't have to be this way. Meaning the causes for being bound up are right here, can be dealt with right here in this body-mind thing. I'm not dependent on somebody else or the world being different. And there's some joy. The next thing that arises is joy, right? There's faith, right? Because now the sense of this mind-body is not being helpless. So that lack of you know moving beyond helplessness into a place of, I get to participate and this dynamic of happiness and unhappiness. I'm not just a victim. And that's some joy. And that joy allows this more skillful engagement, learning, persistent awareness, 
settling down because of the continuity of awareness, the deepening of concentration or samadhi, seeing clearly like, oh, this is how, this is how the mind is planting seeds of suffering. This is the attitude that is supporting being bound up, being tight. Or this is the attitude that seems to be supportive of letting go. This way of seeing, this way of understanding, this way of viewing like non-attachment, right? Or things are changing, right? Seeing the, the ephemeral, insubstantial, changing nature of whatever the mind is noticing. But the, the point I wanted to make is it will always start, this movement toward release will always start with the uh, authentic experience of being a suffering being, feeling bound up. Except now, in the next moment, realizing I'm not helpless. Like falling into the fixed view that this isn't fair, or I deserve this, or I'm screwed, or whatever, sort of, that, that removes creativity and engagement and learning from the equation. Because we just feel screwed by life, or betrayed by life, trapped. So this, and this is an important thread anyway because, you know, the whole path depends on this positive, beautiful energy of faith, joy, and so persistence, making effort that allows for learning, it's really the natural fruit of feeling inspired, feeling joyful, feeling like there's a way. However feeble, you know, initially faith is somewhat borrowed. You know, it's just inspired faith. We have a little whiff of something. But even so, and it's so interesting to notice in in this week especially, but I think all the way through this course on the five faculties, which is really just this engine, this dynamic engine within our own hearts that illuminates our life so that we basically can walk the path, see the difference between what's skillful and unskillful, really see that there is a path so that it can be walked. But to really notice how when our mind is oppressed by unhappiness, whatever the particular flavors of that unhappiness, whatever they might be, it's like good for nothing. Have you noticed? And it's like, on top of that, we often, like the mind is already good for nothing, unpleasant and good for nothing, not capable of learning, basically, or seeing something that's out of the box. It can only see sort of what's already in that box. And then what do we do? Is we sort of whip that mind. Get your, pull yourself up by the bootstraps. Practice, you know. There is a way. The Buddha said there's a way. All my friends say there's a way. And then we just feel more betrayed, more worthless, more like a failure, right? How many moments in our sit, like where we think we're starting over, but we're just setting ourselves up for failure again, to feel bad about our mind. I mean, this is such a common place in practice where we are pretty sure that everybody else can do it or is doing it, but not me, (laughs) Raise your hand if you've had that. <laughs> yeah, and, and the interesting thing is, like, talk about faith. 
is how strong our confidence and faith can be that that's true. That I alone, or maybe there are other people, but especially me, you know, I am incapable of doing what the Buddha said. For the first nine days of this retreat I was on, we were using mindfulness of breathing. You know, the basic instructions. <laughs> and as Ajahn Sumedho has said, there is nothing more frustrating than mindfulness of breathing. You know, it's like when we're not really trying, it's actually we can sort of connect and sustain awareness with the breath. But as soon as it becomes an ego project, it's like really hard to do it. And it can be so frustrating because it seems like it should be pretty easy. And it can really bring in this thought, this very, like, as if it has a lot of evidence to support. Like, I can't do this. Or, my mind is refusing to do this. <laughs> and, it, and it really just is so shocking how compelling that is. It's a very interesting, uh, these uh, meditation practices that require some, di- where you're, the mind is directing attention to something. Now some people, initially, their mind just behaves, right? The people who have sort of a volition, this ab- ability to use volition to kind of make their mind do some things. For a while, it works. <laughs> Eventually, it will stop working. And then the mind has to approach the whole system, like mindfulness of breathing, some of you know, is this 16 steps. The first one, you know, you bring mindfulness to the fore and you notice the breathing in and the breathing out enough with enough clarity to be able to distinguish whether the in-breath or the out-breath was a relatively long or relatively short breath. So you don't have to like really penetrate or fixate on it. You just have to be attentive enough to assess, oh yeah, that was a relatively short breath, in-breath, or that was a relatively short out-breath, or relatively long in-breath. So how to do that without it being a self-project, right? Because the, it's that element, it's like right view from the beginning. So a lot of us, you know, what we do <laughs> is we don't go at it straightforward. Like I remember, long this is a long time ago when I was on my mindfulness of breathing kick. Like oh, oh, 16 steps, because I I knew one thing. Like I had a lot of faith in one thing. I know how to work. I do. I know how to work. And when I when I see something I want, I know how to apply myself. And so I would really like I'm gonna I'm gonna do this thing. <laughs> <laughs> And, you know, after being really beat up, like the straightforward approach just wasn't working, I would sort of, oh, okay, I'm going to pay attention to my sits bones on the cushion, you know, and I'll be really attentive to that because my mind was rebelling. It's like, you can't make me do this. So I'd, like, really there. And then in the periphery, I'd notice the breath coming in and out. But I'd be, like, really with my, that simple point of contact, but, but on the cushion, right? And, you know, and then, oh, but it was always one thing after another, you know, because once that started to work to some degree, you know, then the mind sort of wants to establish it. Okay, now I got it. 
because the mind wants to be in control. That part of the mind, that view, it's all about owning it. Know, like owning the path. But of course, you know, we know it enough to say it out loud, like it's a path of letting go. It's not a path of attainment. Right? This is like one of the first things we hear, regardless of the particular school of Buddhism. So the faith has to, however the mind articulates it, like I was saying to Brian, before we articulate it, we need to trust what we've actually learned. Like what doesn't work and what actually has worked. Intuitively, not in terms of like uh, words yet, but just sort of like in our bones. right? And this is, Another way we might talk about this is the ends and means where they come into alignment, like how we practice. Like if we're really interested in being peaceful, that release of peace, the release of not struggling, right? Ease, being easeful in the body and mind. Mostly we'd agree like, oh yeah, I think that sounds right about the aspiration, like where we're interested in going. So that means the means, the way we practice, the work we do, has to have that same flavor. Like if we're interested in peace, then we practice peace. We don't practice hard work so that we get to peace. And that's the real, that's where we start to build confidence and faith is when we understand that, you know, in Buddhism we always say, Practice starts with right view and ends with right view, or starts with wisdom and it ends with wisdom. And it always feels like a setup, like that, that's not fair, because if I had wisdom, I wouldn't need to practice. You know, it's like, and so we look, so we, it's a, it can be a setup, so we, we look for a teacher who seems to know what they're doing, or the Buddha, but it's, it's always going to be borrowed, right? It always has to become real. So, Right from the start, like in this week in particular, actually a couple weeks now, where we've been looking more specifically at faith, the invitation is that it be something that's real, some real intuition, some direct sense of what's helpful and not helpful. And this is what the Buddha means by the law of karma, that we have some direct earth, earthy sense of what's skillful and unskillful. What way this mind, how the mind is, how the mind's relating, the attitudes that are helpful and unhelpful. So that when we see our mind acting out greed, it's like there's, there's some sense, I mean obviously I don't catch this all the time, but sometimes I do, like I'm holding a hot pan you know, I'm looking at a catalog, catalog or I'm looking at provocative images on the internet or I'm, you know, stewing with self-righteousness, reading the news. or And I see that greed operating in the mind like as if it's going to feed, get something from this pleasant sense experience, right? But because this intuition has been deepening, the mind says, oh yeah, it's like holding a hot pan. This hurts. You know, thinking that this leads to happiness, this whole activity is, it's, is suffering and leads to suffering. So we have to, that's the kind of 
distillation that really builds faith, like, oh, this is not the way. Even if we didn't catch it in the middle of the activity, at the end, when we put it down, and there's some hindsight about what the mind was just up to and the seeds that have been planted, then there can be that very resonant, oh, honey, that's not the way. That didn't help. The seeds that were planted weren't helpful. Right? And then we should be willing then to feel the present moment repercussions that are there for having been unskillful because now we're skillful. Let me feel what this feels like. Let me really let this in that it hurts, that it hasn't been helpful. So it makes its impression. This is how we learn from the past, right? We, we let our mistakes in. Oh, yeah doesn't work. And the same when we notice in real time that we're being skillful or in hindsight that we've been skillful and there's the aftertaste of things being light, buoyant, and free. Oh yeah, that that feels really good. That feels really right. Let me not miss this karmic fruit. Let me let it in. Let me feel it. Feel, notice the impression it's making having been skillful here. So the mind doesn't for, is less likely to forget it. And this is like building faith in skillful and un, what's skillful and unskillful. So it's really like this faith is different than like belief, like some of the other religious systems. You know, there's this sense of like believing in the text or believing in the story having faith. But Buddhism is really an empirical system. It's really based on direct experiencing, built on that. So faith is really important, but it's faith in the direct experiencing and how that, the kind of understanding, initially it's intuitive, it's not conceptual, but you know, some people in particular can articulate their intuition. Other people who might have very deep practice may be really far along the path of awakening, but just aren't any good at articulating what's happening to them. So don't worry if you can't articulate. What matters is this deepening intuition the mind has about what's skillful and unskillful. That leads us all the way. And initially it's very gross, not in a negative sense, but gross like dense. Like, oh yeah, manipulating someone doesn't feel good. You know, seeing that this person is a suffering being, feeling that mutuality with that person, you know, that we share this exposure to suffering, that vulnerability, oh, that feels real, that feels light, that feels free of that, other habit, which would be to separate the person, you know, put them in a different box, a different category, or you're there, I'm here. But to sort of experience someone from a, that other point of view, it has a different, it's different. It has a different effect on the heart. And we can, but we have to be present. This, this, all of this distillation and development of intuition and the faith and confidence that comes out of that it's only going to happen in the present moment. 
I had maybe three hours worth of stuff to share tonight. Let's see if I can pick a few things. Well, this is an interesting thing. Um, Many of you have heard this um, from the Buddhist teachings to the Kalamas, the Kalama Sutta, where he came to a village and they were saying to the Buddha, you know, we really like what we're hearing, but, you know, we hear a lot of wise folks come through town because that was sort of the way it was, I guess, at the time, these wandering aesthetics um, moving, coming through town, giving their teachings, and, you know, probably others were quite charismatic and seemed to know what they were talking about. And so they said, well, how do we, how can we tell? Who knows what they're, what they're doing? And here's how, what the Buddha said. Don't go by reports, by legends, by traditions, by scripture, by logical conjecture, by inference, by analogies, by agreement, through pondering views, right? Oh yeah, this sounds, he's saying or she's saying what I've said, so they probably know what they're doing. By probability or by thought, or by the thought, this uh, teacher is our teacher, right? So I should believe what they have to say. When you know for yourselves that these mental qualities are skillful, these mental qualities are blameless, these mental qualities are praised by the wise, these mental qualities, when adopted and carried out, lead to welfare and to happiness, then you should enter and remain in them. Right? You should really live up, live in accordance to them. So it's not like you don't, we don't listen to people who maybe have been at it longer than we have. But, but that's only a start, right? Then we check it out. We check it out both ways. We put it into practice, but even before we might listen to somebody, we observe the Buddha in many discourses talks about like you really want to watch somebody for a while before you listen to them. So you don't just listen to somebody, you observe them for a while. Uh, basically observe like, are they expressing a lot of greed, anger, and delusion in as much as I can tell in their external activity, observable activity. Because if somebody is acting out greed, anger, and delusion, and we already have enough intuition to be pretty certain that that's a cause for suffering, why would we listen to them? I mean, not that we can expect teachers to be perfect. And this is why a lot of us, you know, it's easy to have (laughs) followed the Buddhist teachings because we don't see the Buddha. But it's really important, you know, like when people show up at Common Ground, you know, part of what they're doing is they're sort of looking around. You know, are there a bunch of jerks, a bunch of, you know, egotistical people sounding their own horns? I mean, what's the general sense of the people here? I mean, this is what I do when I, and if, if our sense was like these people are deluded, we probably wouldn't hang out. It's really nice, actually, like when people come and they talk and they say, well, how long have you been coming? Or how long have you been practicing? And they say five years. Someone says five years, you know, and, and you kind of do that little, oh, okay, so this is what happens after five years of practice. I mean, I'm not saying that's a fair analysis, but this is what we do, and it's appropriate to do this. It's imperfect, but this is what we do. We're trying to get a sense of the causes for happiness and the causes for unhappiness, and why wouldn't we want to take advantage of looking at people who've been at it for a while? 
it's so interesting, I mean, because I've been observing my teachers and other colleagues and longtime practitioners in this way all the time. And I've gotten, you know, because I have kind of a critical judging mind anyway, so I'm sort of built to be, so now you're all going to be uncomfortable around me. <laughs> <laughs> what are you doing? <laughs> but I find it like uh, very conducive for faith now because I see a lot of people just in my role here. And, uh, and just to see, like, because the normal, like from the, 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 un, the unwise point of view, it's sort of like I would think that everybody's going in the same direction, like toward the, being a Buddha, you know, whatever I'd idealistically imagine that to be. But what I've actually found over the, the many years of practice in observing people, observing myself and other people, is like not that some that we move towards perfection, but there's just a lot more ease in being an imperfect human being. You know, the particular personality, the particular conditioning everybody has, particular life circumstances everybody has, just the so-called space the ease, the nimbleness, the creativity in being your personality, your imperfect personality with your imperfect body, living your imperfect life in this imperfect society. There's just a lot more freedom in that particular imperfect expression that we call you or me or you know, some person. And you can really start, you know, once you start having a sense of your own intuition of what freedom is, then you can just see the miraculous, creative ways it expresses itself differently in every person. Like how somebody over years of practice like, becomes okay having sort of a depressive personality or a manic personality or a controlling personality you know, or a superficial um, What's the word for people who sort of flit about? Uh, hmm? Flighty, no, but yeah, there's a, this particular word. Hmm? No, 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 more like, uh, yeah, just sort of skimming the surface of life, not too serious. Anyway, you get superficial, but anyway. But dilettante, that's what I was looking for. Yeah. So, but... But no particular personality is uh, blocked from being free. Right? That's, the, that's the thing that we begin to see. In the same way that when we look at animals, you know, wild animals or whatever, we can look at things like it's like we, we, we actually want to help each other out in that way. It's like in terms of realizing what's skillful and unskillful, seeing the possibility of freedom, seeing how everybody and their imperfections, it's like there's something perfect already. And I don't mean that in some dilettantish way, (laughs) superficial way, right? But but it's like seeing that you don't have to be different to be free. I don't have to be different to be free. I just need to understand what this is and what it isn't. And it's such a relief. 
And it doesn't keep us, like some of you might have a lot of passion to set some things in motion in the world or make some things stop in the world. And that's totally okay to let your personality engage in those kinds of ways. But we don't have to postpone freedom. Freedom isn't dependent on where we are in that project of becoming somebody or doing something in the world. Right? Freedom comes first or can come first. It's, it's sort of what the heart, what life is actually about not the particular projects that we accomplish or don't accomplish, but the degree of freedom, the release in the, in the sort of expression of our life, acting out what we're, whatever we're going to do. So really look at that intuition of freedom and you know we can only trust what we know and it's okay to borrow, you know, I, I had several things I was going to read, but we're out of time. But you probably have your own pithy things that, lines from poems, lines from the Buddha, that for whatever, how, for whatever the reason was, kind of strummed the right strings your own, of your own understanding of the possibility of freedom, the possibility of release, of moving through life unburdened. But life still being life. Relationships still being relationships, injustices still being injustices, but not afraid to sort of show up in our skin, in our worlds that we inhabit. So let's let go of the words. Just take a few seconds to sit together. Maybe it's okay to let everything move as it's going to move anyway. And part of this is replacing the certainty that I'm a suffering being who wants to be free to a more Who knows? Who knows? So thanks everyone. Nice to be together tonight. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.